the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, September 4th, 2023, the 957th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I want to pick up where we left off last week with the so-called coups in Africa and what seems to be now a mass movement away from the global regime. Countries around the world are removing their regime-installed puppet leaders and replacing them either with military governments for the time being or replacing the government entirely. And so last week we were discussing Gabon, among other nations. They are the most recent to 
stage one of these so-called coups. And there were some developments over the weekend. This is ABC News this morning. Gabon's military leader is sworn in as head of state after ousting the president last week. Gabon's new military leader was sworn in as head of state Monday, less than a week after ousting the president whose family had ruled the Central African nation for more than five decades. General Bryce Clotaire Olegui Nguema took the oath in the presidential palace in front of a packed, boisterous room of government officials military and local leaders in Gabon's capital, Libreville. Olegui is a cousin of the ousted president, Ali Bongo Ondimba, served as a bodyguard to his late father and is head of the Republican Guard, an elite military unit. Speaking to applause and standing ovations Monday, Olegui said the military had seized power without bloodshed and promised to return power to the people by organizing free, transparent and credible elections. With the new government made up of experienced people, we're going to give everyone a chance to hope, he said. The mutinous soldiers who toppled Bongo last week said he risked leading the country into chaos, and they then unanimously designated Olegi president of the Transitional Committee. Bongo, who had been president for 14 years, was ousted after being declared the winner of a vote that was widely seen as rife with the irregularities and lacking transparency. The speedy swearing-in of Olegi will create perceptions of legitimacy and consolidate his power to deter political opponents from challenging his rule, said Maja Bovkon, senior analyst at Verisk Maplecroft, a risk assessment firm. It is also likely intended as a means to restore investor confidence by conveying the message that he will not waste time in returning to business as usual and democratic rules, she said. However, the fact that he plans to rewrite the Constitution and electoral code means that the transition period will likely take months, if not years. Now, all of this is stuff that people should be prepared to keep an eye on, because some of this does have the tone of the global regime and their strategies. Bongo had served two terms since coming to power in 2009 after the death of his father, who ruled the country for 41 years, and there was widespread discontent with his family's reign. Another group of mutinous soldiers attempted a coup in 2019, but was quickly overpowered. Nine members of the Bongo family, meanwhile, are under investigation in France, and some face preliminary charges of embezzlement, money laundering, and other forms of corruption, according to Sherpa, a French NGO dedicated to accountability. Investigators have linked the family to more than $92 million in properties in France, including two villas in Nice, the group says the idea of a long transition isn't something that appeared to bother Gabonese who attended the inauguration Thursday. We are turning the page of 55 years of an oligarchy for Gabon. It is a new start, the end of one political party governance without real benefits for the Gabonese people, said Desiree Iname, publisher for a local media outlet. It would be acceptable for the junta to transition within three years, he said. Gabon's opposition candidate, Albert Ando Osa, wouldn't comment on the inauguration, but told the Associated Press last week that the government needed to return to constitutional rule, and he didn't consider the president's ousting to be a coup, but rather a palace revolution in order to continue the Bongo family's reign. And that is a very interesting potential possibility there. 
if this is just a reshuffling to make it look like real change and to communicate to the world that real change was made, that might be buying the region and buying France sometime in Gabon. So we're going to have to keep an eye on this. I think it's appropriate to be optimistic about the process here, but it's possible that the degree of early optimism was potentially unwarranted. Again, we're going to have to see how this develops as we get more familiar with these characters and see whether the actions that emerge map onto what's happening in some of these other African nations or if this ends up being an optics thing, a narrative illusion to actually extend the power of the regime. It's important to be able to distinguish the good twin, evil twin faction in all of these countries, and that's an ongoing process. We're pretty clear on what the good twin, evil twin faction is in the United States. We can now see the uniparty in full, but that doesn't mean that we understand who every character really is. It's something that we understand and observe over time, and we see whether their actions continue to support sovereign individuals and sovereign nations. The ABC News article concludes this way. The former French colony is a member of OPEC, but its oil wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few. And nearly 40 percent of Gabonese aged 15 to 24 were out of work in 2020, according to the World Bank. Its oil export revenue was $6 billion in 2022, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. We're going to have to see how this develops, but it kind of has this air of the regime attempting to give some sort of concession. They stage this takeover. Someone new is in power now, overthrowing this old family, except the man installed to run things now is related to that family and tasked with putting in a new election system. The election system has to be a good system that can't be easily cheated. A system isn't better just because it's new. A new leader isn't better just because he's new. We're very familiar with this dynamic in the United States. Before Trump, we had a series of uniparty presidents just swapping back and forth between uniparty left and uniparty right. We had George H.W. Bush, then Bill Clinton, then George W. Bush, then Barack Obama. And now, of course, we have the demented degenerate uniparty communist Joe Biden. And there are narrative differences. There are cultural differences when they switch between uniparty left and uniparty right. The arguments and discussions among the public change as the media feeds them new things to divide about, new things to argue about. They tell you this is how Republicans won or this is how Democrats won. Or if Republicans don't come around on this, they might be putting themselves at risk in the upcoming midterms. And the stories change and they change and the party in power flips from one to the other and then flips back. But the uniparty stays in power the entire time and the agenda marches forward. Now, if you have unrest in a small country like Gabon and the people are attempting to rise up, you can give them some of what they want, enough to pacify them, meet some of their demands, and keep one of your people in power so that even if you are dealing with a five-year setback or a 10-year setback, things aren't really thrown off course. The agenda keeps advancing. The people reach a point where something must be done to pacify them before things get out of control. So you make some changes, you pretend it's exactly what the people always wanted, the media communicates that to them, some of their 
quote unquote leaders, people on their side who they thought they could trust, tell them that this is the acceptable option. Look at how good we've got it now. And people go back to sleep. And that is, of course, what the Uniparty right is trying to do to us with Ron DeSantis right now. And they're pretty explicit about it. They're saying, no, no, you just can't have Donald Trump. Don't you see? We're just not going to allow that. We've shown you in every way we are capable of showing you that you are not allowed to have Donald Trump. Now, do we still have free and fair elections? Of course we do. You're just not allowed to select that Trump guy that you all seem to want. What we're going to do is we're going to give you Ron DeSantis. And he's not going to do all those things you like, all those things that Donald Trump would do. But we are going to allow him to say mean things about trans people. And that makes you guys happy, doesn't it? Don't you all want to say mean things about trans people all day long while consuming endless trans content from the Daily Wire? Isn't that all you rubes want? Hey, you guys can make another Bud Light joke, okay? Do you guys want to make a Bud Light joke and do that for a couple months? We'll let you. We'll let you do that. We'll even tell you that Anheuser-Busch is poor now just because of your Bud Light jokes. That'll make you retards happy, won't it? We're going to let you have Ron DeSantis. Yes, we're going to keep funding the Ukraine war. Ron has already promised us he's going to do that. We'll let him sue Disney for a little while longer. You can have that one too, another six months or a year. Once Ron gets back in power, you'll all just go right back to sleep and start coming to Disney World again and everything will be just fine. You're not going to want us to sue Disney in the future. Not after we give you Ron DeSantis, which is all you've ever dreamed of. He's just like Donald Trump, except he won't go after us and the regime. Don't you see? Don't you understand? We'll give you Donald Trump if he won't come after us. But Donald Trump will come after us. So we're going to give you Donald Trump light. We're going to give you Ron DeSantis. The regime doesn't actually care about winning every battle, at least not in the optics. They care about advancing their long-term agenda all the time and never losing their grip on power. They know that once the people have been pacified, they can start implementing their system again. Push some more money in there. The people will feel rich. Oh, they have a new TV. Oh, they have a new chair. That's all because of what the regime has given them. And they will remember how much easier and more comfortable life can be. They'll slide right back into it. And in five years or in 10 years, the regime will pick up right where they left off. Not that they ever really stopped. And it'll take another generation before people stand up to them again. The French outlet Le Monde has been covering this. And of course, it is important to consider that Le Monde is a French outlet. And Gabon is or has essentially been a French colony. Le Monde wrote on Friday, Gabon's new strongman, General Bryce Olegui Nguema, on Friday, vowed the country's institutions would be more democratic, two days after heading a coup that ended 55 years of rule by the Bongo family. The dissolution of the institutions, decreed on Wednesday during the coup, is quote-unquote temporary, he said in a speech. It is a question of reorganizing them in order to make them more democratic, he said. 
Olegi also stepped up contacts with national groups and foreign interests, meeting members of civil society a day after a speech to 200 businessmen whom he lectured on corruption. Broadcast on state television earlier Friday, he sternly warned business leaders in the oil-rich state against, quote, overbilling and told them to commit to, quote, the development of the country. He said it is difficult to perceive at this stage your commitment or patriotism when it comes to the development expected by our compatriots. He vowed to make sure the overcharged money, quote, comes back to the state. He said, this situation for me cannot continue and I will not tolerate it. So the concern is that the massive oil profits are not coming back to, in his words, the state. Now, the problem is the regime always equates the state and the people because the state is public. It is ostensibly made up of the people. The people pay taxes. Therefore, the government money is the money of the taxpayers. But more recently, the government simply prints money and does so by essentially continuing the indentured servitude of the people whose taxpayer money over time and productivity over time is supposed to make all of that money up for the bank. And this little sleight of hand that they pull on the conflation of the people with the state is how they get away with explaining the communist agenda in general. They say all the people will share in everything equally. But what they mean is that the state will own everything and then it will divvy up to the people exactly what it decides the people need, not want, not deserve, just need. If you give them what they need, then they won't revolt. And if you choose not to give them more than they need, they have to continue working constantly, which the state has already committed them to doing. Now, you can think about companies in America profiting off what the state allows them to do, off what the state allows them to keep, how the state facilitates business for some of these companies like Walmart, for instance, when Trade to China is fully opened and Walmart can import all the goods that they sell created with Chinese slave labor in a lot of cases. That gives them all sorts of advantages. We know that, for instance, the oil companies here have certain advantages created for them by the government based on monetary policy or foreign policy or military policy. So in Gabon, you have these oil producers themselves making tons of money. And now they're being told that that money is going to have to come back to the state. You see, you are all engaged in corruption. And just like it's portrayed here, it's the business leaders who are corrupt. It's not the business leaders colluding with the state to create all this corruption, enriching themselves at the people's expense, just like it is absolutely everywhere. No, it's the business leaders being very, very bad. And so now the government is going to punish them by making them pay the government some of their money. And then they might even distribute some of that money to the people whose lives improve materially in some small way before they change the monetary policy, reduce what those people's money is worth, and then just keep going. It has been far too easy in our history and in the history of the world for people to simply be pacified and then for the wool to be pulled right back over their eyes. Le Monde also published this article on Friday, an interview with Albert Onda Osa, 
The headline is everything must be done so that General Olegi Nguema hands over power to me. General Bryce Olegi Nguema, who overthrew Gabonese President Ali Bongo Ondimba on Wednesday, August 30th, is settling into power. After meeting with business leaders and the diplomatic corps on Friday, he is due to be sworn in on Monday as, quote, president of the transition. Against this backdrop, the opposition is attempting to defend its claim to victory in the presidential election held on August 26th. Albert Ondo Asa, the candidate for the alternance 2023 opposition platform, wants his election to be recognized and the military to hand over power. Lamont spoke with him by telephone on Friday, September 1st, while he was at his residence in Libreville, the capital. You congratulated the army on overthrowing Ali Bongo Ondimba. What are you asking of it today? This is the question for Osa, the man who was said to have lost 64% to 31% in their election last Saturday. He responds, I'm asking it to restore Republican and constitutional order. The electoral process must be brought to a conclusion and the results must be announced so that I can become the legitimate president and then the legal president once they have been validated by the constitutional court. Do you have any doubts about your victory? He says, I have no doubts about my victory. Everyone has the results, including the diplomatic missions. Do you see yourself as Gabon's future president-elect? Let's not get ahead of ourselves, he says. Today, I'm a candidate who's the favorite on the basis of the results I have. In order for me to become president of the republic, the institutions must rule by law. And there's an interesting dynamic presented here as well. He doesn't want people's faith in these institutions ultimately to fall to zero. He doesn't want people to lose faith entirely in the institutions of Gabon. And there is an interesting parallel presented here as well. We've seen our institutions fail us on a number of levels, pretty much all of them. And some of them seem so infiltrated and so corrupted and also potentially so unnecessary that it's hard to see how we go forward continuing some of these institutions in the first place. We watched the Supreme Court, for instance, refuse to take up the lawsuit brought by Ken Paxton in Texas and 18 other state attorneys general after the obviously botched and stolen 2020 election. We now have a Supreme Court justice who was appointed by an illegitimate president and confirmed by an illegitimate Senate. And then on the flip side, there have been some really good decisions that suggest the court may not be compromised, that it may not be fully gone. We've certainly seen lower court decisions that suggest some legitimacy there as well. The Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision overthrew five decades of nonsense on the Roe v. Wade decision, sending abortion back to the states. West Virginia versus EPA might lay the groundwork for dismantling the administrative state. And it's entirely possible that there may still be election cases to be heard at the Supreme Court and the people can judge them for themselves at that time. If and when that occurs relative to the 2020 election, you may well see a decision on a Kerry Lake case in Arizona, for instance, or an Abe Hamaday case there. The country might have seen the full presentation of election fraud evidence in the trials following these various Trump indictments. 
I've said on this podcast before, and a lot of people have been pointing out recently, which is great. The highest court in this land is not the Supreme Court. It's the court of public opinion. What the people ultimately want and believe is what matters. And we can actually decide that for ourselves and we can communicate this to our fellow Americans. The institutions exist to serve the people. The government exists to serve the people. It's not the other way around where we hand off ultimate authority over our lives to these quote unquote institutions. If virtually the entire country understands that our elections are stolen in broad daylight and there's no reason to have faith in any of them anywhere at any point, and the Supreme Court is unable to see that, then the Supreme Court as an institution is worthless. We would hope that the Constitution set up by our founding fathers would have been enough to make sure that our institutions couldn't be fully infiltrated and corrupted. But again, even in their writings, they make it clear that these rules are designed for a moral people who are attentive to the needs of a nation and to the needs of their family and their community. Once we are atomized, once we respond to authority in a way that allows us to seek our highest own individual benefit without any thought for the rest of it, and once we do that as a society, everyone simply bowing to authority at all times, then we are no longer that free and moral people who are going to stand up for the values written into that constitution. And at that point, it becomes rather easy to fully infiltrate, convince the people that more government is needed and all of a sudden more government appears. And then that new part of government makes more rules for how the people are going to live. And the more rules there are, the more complicated the process of following all those rules becomes. People make a business out of telling the rich and powerful how to navigate that minefield of rules so that they can be the ones who ultimately profit. And that's exactly what they do. They navigate their way through while the rules actually end up oppressing the people. And they create more rules to allow their infiltration to go even deeper and for them to strengthen their grip on power. If the people are not paying attention, it is possible for them to do that to such a degree that none of the institutions are actually capable of preserving the things that the Constitution was meant to guarantee. And that's the situation that we have found ourselves in. Now, as I said, we can't always detect the actual degree of infiltration and compromise within a given institution in this country. So there's no way I'm going to be able to sit here and tell you that I understand what it would be like in Gabon. I certainly don't. But again, as we learn more about these characters, as we observe their actions, then we are able to learn more about how infiltrated their institutions are. Maybe they have enough to salvage there. And hey, maybe we have enough to salvage here. If 90% of the American people understand that our elections are regularly stolen in broad daylight everywhere in the country at every level, from your local school boards and city councils all the way up to President of the United States of America, then we might actually just be able to flush out all of these public offices and make sure that whoever fills those positions are good, honest, patriotic Americans who will live up to the oath they swear. And naturally, the other hope would be that a lot of the institutions are simply eliminated. But the point is that we have to find out. 
And we're in the process of finding out. And if it turns out that they all are infiltrated, they all are compromised and they no longer serve any legitimate purpose for the American people. The founders said we had the right to abolish the government and start a new one. And we don't talk about this probably enough, but here's the text of the Declaration of Independence that contains this section. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And Jefferson goes on to describe the various examples of tyranny over which they were choosing to abolish that form of government and create their own. Now, again, maybe that's not necessary. Maybe the good twin versus the evil twin faction in the United States is large enough and has enough of a foothold on control that we can simply clean out these institutions that are still constitutional and necessary and begin to move forward in a different manner. Hopefully that's the case. We shall see. And we will also see in Gabon. I've said many times before that I don't believe Joe Biden should be impeached, obviously, because he's not a legitimate president. That is not the proper way to remove him. But the truth is that impeaching Joe Biden doesn't fix all the problems anyway. That's not the goal. Getting rid of Joe Biden is not the goal. No matter how many times the Ron DeSantis people try to pretend that that is the only thing that matters in 2024. The only thing that matters is that we prevent another term of Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden's already not legitimate, and these people support his legitimacy and have since the stolen election of 2020. If the most important thing was not having Joe Biden publicly recognized as president, they could have gone a long way to ensuring that wouldn't have happened from the beginning, and they chose not to. But regardless, getting rid of Joe Biden is not the ultimate goal. And if we pretend that it is the ultimate goal and we win a rigged election and everyone declares mission accomplished like they're George W. Bush or something, 
We're not going to get to the ultimate goal. All we're going to do is replace one uniparty regime figure with another one. But back to this Lamond interview for just a moment, and then we will move to other parts of the world. Another question from the Lamond interviewer. But General Bryce Olegi Nguema has already announced that he will take the oath of office on Monday after the general elections were nullified. Were you caught off guard by the army, especially seeing as part of civil society and the political class are calling for a transition? He responds, this is about the republic, about turning our country around, not about a speed race. The necessary time must be taken and everything must be done so that General Olegi Nguema hands power over to me. There are enough wise men in Gabon capable of acting as interfaces to get us there. There are also principles of international law that must be respected. Otherwise, Gabon would be isolated and unable to extricate itself. There is no doubt we need to come to our senses. Now, does worrying about international law seem like a particularly sovereign thing to say? Certainly not in my book. But again, you have to know the situation on the ground and what is being dealt with here. We've talked about how Donald Trump is always mid-negotiation. Everything he is doing is in the process of creating leverage. These communications aren't just someone's opinion. They're part of an ongoing negotiation. The Lamond reporter asked, were you able to speak to General Olegi Nguema to defend your cause? And Osa said, I think the general has a lot to do, but we'll have time to get together and talk. This will happen at some point. I'm not rushing into anything and neither is he. Each of us has points to make. Then it will be time to start the negotiation. And it's also, of course, important to focus on timelines here. Just because it is being reported to us that the future leader is in doubt in Gabon, that does not mean it's in doubt to the parties involved. The transition president, the general, probably knows whether or not he's going to hand off the government to Osa in the way Osa has described. Osa likely knows that as well. And if he knows that that is inevitable in two weeks or four weeks or two months or whatever it is, then his communications are going to be a whole lot different than if all of this stuff was in doubt and up for debate. It sounds like he is very confident with the way things are heading. And it sounds like he also believes that he has the support of the people in all this. And he was the candidate, of course, out there holding rallies that thousands of people would attend. Now, over the weekend, a group of people dressed in red and black, all coordinating their little outfits and graphics and their little flags, just like the Patriot Front group, descended upon Orlando, Florida, marching around Disney World, chanting, we are everywhere. This little neo-Nazi group called the Blood Tribe. That's how they refer to themselves. And just like Patriot Front, most of these guys have masks on. There are some notable extremist leaders among the group, like a notable white supremacist named John Minadio and another guy named Christopher Polehouse, who's the leader of this little blood tribe group. And then they have this other fully tattooed man named Kent McClellan, who goes by the nickname Boneface. Now, the news media immediately began covering this as right-wing terrorism on the rise and right-wing white supremacists. They always want to attach these groups to normal Americans. 
But this one kind of blew up in their face a bit because this man, Christopher Polthouse, who is referred to as the leader of this group blood tribe, who all put on matching outfits and then have a parade. That is what these very scary people do. They put on matching outfits and have parades. But problems with that narrative began to arise when Polhouse said this. And by the way, if the kids are around, maybe a good time for earmuffs. There's some swearing, and I mean, they're Nazis. Christopher, there's a presidential race going on right now. Are you going to vote in 2024? What do you think is going to happen? My vote vote is useless. I think Biden's better than Trump because he sends rockets to Ukraine. In, in support of Ukraine, you mean? Hell Ukraine, hell Asia. Slava Ukraina! Tell me this, Christine. Come on, just your fucking drain on you fucking reborn slaves! Slava Ukraina! You're like Skullface from Marvel, right? Goldface! Boneface, sorry. I'm Boneface. What's, uh, what inspired you to kind of tattoo up like this? Ukraine. So the leader of the blood tribe says he loves Biden, then has a big grin on his face. He's sending weapons to Ukraine and they all start saying Heil Ukraine and Slava Ukraini. And it's all very inauthentic and very fake looking and very dumb. But it is ideologically consistent. There are Nazis in Ukraine. These guys are Nazis or wannabe Nazis or whatever they are. They're a bunch of guys in matching outfits, wearing masks and having a parade so that everyone will pay attention to them. Lots of people are saying those are obviously feds in the same way you might say that about the Patriot Front. And apparently there's some confusion about how this word is used. And for people who are very particular with how words are used, this is a very big and important problem. Oh my God, people are not going to take us seriously unless we use the exact right words. Various members of Con Inc. who always make sure to correct everybody about everything spent the weekend correcting people about this. But here's the thing. All of these so-called extremist groups are either infiltrated by feds or were set up by feds in the first place. It doesn't matter if all the members are feds or not. The fact that they are infiltrated and can be controlled by the feds who have infiltrated them makes them a fed op. There could be one fed and 50 non-feds. And if that fed is the leader and the 50 guys are all obeying him, that's a fed op. The fact that certain members might genuinely believe the ideology and might be genuinely violent people doesn't change the status there. That doesn't make it a real extremist hate organization, because as soon as they all know they were tricked by a Fed, the organization doesn't exist anymore. And if it does, and they're actually going in that direction, then we can have a different conversation. But for as long as they are being directed and instructed and things are being planned by some Fed or Fed asset, that's a Fed op. I don't think we really need to argue about the exact terms or whether it's all feds. There are many uniparty right villagers who, in order to still be taken seriously now that the level of censorship has been adjusted in some way, they still are committed to pointing out that other people are conspiracy theorists. Other people do not take issues seriously enough. These people aren't responsible. Just look at them saying feds when it's not all feds. These were the same people calling us irresponsible for how we talked about Paul Pelosi hammer time. These people simply do not get it. 
and it doesn't seem like they're going to. Now, as a narrative op, this weekend's event was probably very effective. They have these ridiculous neo-Nazi people in all their little masks and their little outfits with their little flags as they march around. Everyone thinks they're going to get a nice white supremacist story. And instead, they announce that they are supporting Joe Biden because he continues arming Ukrainian Nazis and they spend the rest of their time saying Slava Ukraini. This is not the narrative they had planned. This does severe damage to the idea that these groups are all right-wingers or Trump supporters. What would happen if a critical mass of people in the world understood that these organizations were started by the regime to support regime interests? And as far as Trump and MAGA are concerned, there's no normal person out there supporting America first ideals and wanting to make America great again who supports these groups. It's just a myth. It's such nonsense that anyone would even believe it. But it's been drilled into people's heads for decades that somehow these groups are attached in some way to the right wing. It makes no sense. These are collectivist ideologies. Of course, they're ultimately on the same side. They see the world the same way. The fact that they have the same goals and are often set up or infiltrated by the same people is only logical. Now, again, is all of this as charade? Is all of this an info op? One way or another, that element is unavoidable in a situation like this. This is not an example of a rise in real hate groups in the United States. This is not an example of what the FBI calls domestic terrorism so they can use the apparatus of federal law enforcement to pursue their political opponents. This is, for the most part, a clown show. And Laura Loomer was on the ground covering a bunch of this, which doesn't actually do anything to tamp down speculation that this was an info op. But she wrote on X, Kent Boneface McClellan, this is the man with his entire bald head tattooed, was arrested by the FBI in Florida for domestic terrorism in May of 2012. The FBI said he and others were, quote, preparing a terrorist act against national minorities in Florida, end quote. He then fled to Ukraine to join Right Sector, a creation of the CIA in 2014. In 2022, he returned to Ukraine and was reportedly deported. Now he's back in Florida, where he's active in the local Nazi scene. Yesterday, he was on I-4 with a group of Nazis who were saying they support Joe Biden while they were waving swastika flags and shouting slurs at me because I am Jewish. There is no way you get away with all of that after being arrested by the FBI for domestic terrorism. And there's no way you get away with traveling to Ukraine to fight in a foreign war as an American citizen, defected mercenary, unless you are some type of FBI or CIA informant. And she is probably right about that. Now, this morning, she took this a step further. She made the connection between Ukrainian neo-Nazis and the January 6th operation. She wrote, this is massive. You all need to read this. I have exclusively confirmed that the FBI identified Ukrainian operatives and neo-Nazis who were at the Capitol on J6 and even questioned J6ers about these Ukrainian spies during interviews with the FBI. So this is nothing new. This has been around in the community for years now, for the whole time, that various CIA trained neo-Nazis in Ukraine 
were running ops in America, including on J6. Last night, the so-called QAnon shaman himself, Jacob Chansley, wrote, Laura Loomer is correct. I think she's on to something big here. Thank you, Laura, for exposing this when no one else in the Mockingbird media would touch it. Why aren't we asking the same questions Laura is, considering Nazis were rallying in Florida, especially considering that Boneface, who was at said rally, said he was funded by CIA recently given Ukrainian citizenship to fight along other Nazis against Russia. The FBI knew Sergei Dibinin was a spy and asked if I knew him. I said that I did not and was just posing for a photo with him. Why is he allowed to walk free? Is he an FBI or CIA asset? And that picture, of course, has been out there for a long time. Jake Chansley with this guy, Sergei Dibinin, who is one of these CIA trained Ukrainians. Loomer wrote this morning. Jacob Chansley confirmed himself last night that nobody else has reported this. Why did the FBI hide the fact that they were asking J6ers and their lawyers during interviews if they knew the Ukrainian spy, Sergei Dibinin? Why has the FBI and the CIA hidden the fact that Ukraine committed an act of war against the U.S. on J6 2021? And why is our government still sending billions of dollars to Ukraine to fund these Nazis who are trying to carry out a color revolution in the U.S.? Now, obviously, I have no idea where this is going, but think of the narrative elements that have now broken into the central narrative that are unavoidable. If people are going to see this group of neo-Nazis and they're all going to make it go viral because they think they're going to own the MAGA people again. And then the neo-Nazis turn around and support Joe Biden and support Ukraine. There's no way to avoid that story breaking through into the central narrative. They've been calling us Nazis for years. They've been supporting Ukraine with their little flag emojis. These are two critical elements for them. And now their side is being properly blamed for both of them. And as you might imagine, there are people in the uniparty right who are doing the defense I just talked about a couple of minutes ago that they're saying, oh, you can't call them feds. Why are you trying to diminish the real neo-Nazi elements in this story? And the answer is because this is what the regime does. This is the regime acting. Why am I going to pretend that this isn't the regime? This is not some spontaneous group of random losers scattered throughout the deep south expressing their white grievance. It's ridiculous to pretend otherwise, but it's awfully hard to separate the regime doing that while supporting Ukraine with the uniparty right, who is also supporting Ukraine on behalf of that same regime. Now, conveniently, we don't have that problem because we don't support Nazis and we don't support Ukraine and we don't support the regime. Now, speaking of Ukraine, Tucker Carlson last week posted a new episode of his show, this time an interview with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. And as you might suspect, he addressed the Ukraine issue. So back to the, the piece, if you were in charge or if Trump were to win, uh, in 2024, what? How would you approach that? What What would it look like? The settlement. First, you should admit, probably, publicly acknowledging, that the key is in your hand. So, if United States would like to have a peace, next morning there is a peace, because it's obvious that the Ukrainians, the poor Ukrainians, on their own, 
they are not competitive in this war. So if there is no money and there is no equipments from the West and especially from the United States, the war is over. Yes. The solution is in your hand. It's, it's in the hand of, the, of your president. The president one or the future one. But you will solve it. The United States can do it. Nobody else. It's not the solution for the Ukrainians. Of course, it's about Ukrainians. They cannot be neglected. They must be involved. But, but the real factor is not Ukraine. The real factor is intention of the United States. So if you're one of the people who thought Donald Trump was crazy for saying that he could end the war in 24 hours, there is the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban saying Donald Trump could end the war in 24 hours. And to be clear, he's also saying that Joe Biden could end the war in 24 hours by cutting off support. But there's no way that the puppet president of the global regime is going to do that. He's not going to simply give away one of the regime's most important strongholds and potentially their ancestral homeland. Biden does not have that kind of decision-making power, and the people in control of Joe Biden would not make that decision. So it's not going to happen. It is not possible for Joe Biden to actually end that war. They are trying to continue it. On X last week, Orban posted, you may or may not like Donald Trump, but his foreign policy was good for the U.S. and good for the world. He didn't start a war. He strengthened NATO and brought peace to the Middle East. Bring him back so he can bring us peace. That is a sovereign, powerful world leader, not approved of by the regime, saying in very simple terms in public that Donald Trump must be brought back. That is the path to peace. There is not another path to peace other than Donald Trump in the United States of America. And it sure ain't Ron DeSantis. The Russian news organization TASS, T-A-S-S, reported the Hungarian government believes that in order to settle the Ukrainian conflict, Western states must provide security guarantees to Russia and must not accept Ukraine and NATO. This is from a Hungarian minister in Orban's office. Continuing, the Western world, which supports Ukraine, must provide security guarantees to Russia, but under no circumstances give Ukraine NATO membership. That same Hungarian minister also notes that Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban expressed a similar opinion to U.S. journalist Tucker Carlson. He is certain that Western states should forget about Ukraine's integration in NATO and negotiate a new architecture of international security with Russia. As for talks about the return of Crimea in particular to Ukraine, Orban considers them futile because, in his opinion, it is totally impossible. And of course, it is totally impossible unless you expect Russia to decide that they are just winning too hard and need to give something back to Ukraine. Crimea will never be back in Ukrainian hands. Among many interesting moments in this interview, Orban also had this to say. I, mean, I, I don't live in Hungary. I can't assess it. I can assess your media landscape, which is much freer than ours. Much freer, much more diversity. I have to fight every day. In the United <laughs> States, right. Uh, the people who run our country don't. Virtually every media outlet is on their side, reflexively. Um, and yet they describe you in the United States in the media as a fascist. And the Biden administration seems to believe it, the State Department anyway. They is, you know, the U.S. is the biggest, most powerful country in the world. Are you worried about being crushed by the United States? It's dangerous, may I say. So we should not neglect the importance of that fact. When the United States administration does not like you or consider you as uh, 
as an enemy or 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 having a a, a, a backtrack. It's it's dangerous in international politics, you know. So you you are powerful, still number one power of the world. So if you criticize somebody, we have to be very cautious how to deal with that. And now the democratic administration does it regularly. So we have to be clear here that this is not the voice of America. It's the voice of the administration of United States. Not all Americans has the same approach as the government. Like uh, the Republicans, who are far closer on value basis to us. Uh, the previous president is friend of Hungary on the value basis, historically and you know, uh, wholeheartedly. So it's a real friend. So don't make uh, a mistake to consider United States equal to the United States administration. Yes. And, and I think that, that difference is important because you have competition, a political system based on competition, and hopefully Trump will come back or Republicans will come back, and the relationship will be again very good. But now it's absurd. Can you imagine, can you imagine that United States government deleted the agreement between Hungary and the uh, United States on double taxation, but they still have the, the agreement between Russia and United States. And yeah, that means that American have, citizens, for those who don't know what yeah, this yeah. is, American citizens who live and work in Hungary have to pay Hungarian taxes to your government, but also full federal taxes to the United States. But, but, but the attitude as such, we are a member of NATO, we are ally to the United States, and we are worse treated than the Russians, you know. What, what's that about? What is it about? It's what you just said. Now, what we have right there is Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, describing the good twin, evil twin dynamic in the United States, making it quite clear that the voice of the government in charge of the United States right now, ostensibly this faction of the regime, the illegitimate Biden administration, they are not the voice of America. They don't speak for all Americans. He notes that the Republicans at least have values closer to the ones held by Hungarians and endorsed by this administration in Hungary, but that Donald Trump is the real friend of the Hungarian people and that he's proven it. That is a world leader saying that Joe Biden does not speak for America. He's just the voice of the United States government and a puppet at that. Now, you might guess that Viktor Orban is no friend of the Hungarian billionaire, George Soros, one of the best people in the world. And back in June, Orban was warning that George Soros's son, Alexander, who's essentially taken over the family business at this point, was attempting to incite a migration crisis in Hungary. And of course, they have the same migrant problems as any country around the world that the regime is trying to destabilize while changing the makeup of the population. Now, that same Alexander Soros has made headlines in the last few days, this one from Breitbart. Soros' son vows no retreat from Europe, warns Trump and MAGA-style Republicans threaten EU unity. The son of Hungarian activist billionaire George Soros and chairman of Open Society Foundations rejected claims that his globalist funding operation will, quote, retreat from Europe, while warning that former President Donald Trump poses a risk to EU unity if reelected. 
It's like they might as well be advertising for the Trump campaign. Are they worried about Ron DeSantis? We hear all the time from Ron DeSantis supporters that Ron DeSantis is the only one who has fired Soros prosecutors. Well, if that was such a big deal, why aren't the Soroses more worried about Ron DeSantis? Why are they still so scared of Donald Trump if Ron DeSantis is ultimately going to win? Alex Soros, the scion of the Soros empire and recently installed head of the Open Society Foundations, said this week that his organization is still intent on interfering in Europe, saying that the continent, quote, remains of huge strategic importance to the work of OSF. Writing in Politico, the 37-year-old philanthropist said that reports claiming his group is planning on leaving Europe were misleading but caveated that the focus of the Soros machine will likely shift east as the, quote, future of accountable democratic government in Europe is now being determined not just in Paris and Berlin, but also in Warsaw, Kiev, and Prague. Here is what Soros published in Politico under the headline, No Soros Retreat in Europe. News reports that the Open Society Foundations and Soros are leaving Europe are misleading. We are not leaving. Europe remains of huge strategic importance to the work of OSF, which began in the 1980s when my father started funding independent thinkers in his native Hungary, then a Soviet satellite in the communist Eastern Europe. And today, for all its faults, the EU still stands as a global beacon of the values that shape our work. Isn't that amazing? The centralized European state is a symbol of the values that have shaped the work of the Soroses for decades since George Soros began trying to overthrow European countries. Now, if you're one of those people who vaguely understands that the Soroses are not good people, then I would encourage you to go on YouTube and search is George Soros a sociopath and watch him interviewed by 60 minutes. And if you can somehow watch that and not realize that George Soros is evil or you understand, wow, this man is extraordinarily evil, but I would like to know more about him. Then you simply go to prussiagate.substack.com and search Reichswef, that's R-E-I-C-H-S, WEF, like World Economic Forum, and Soros, and you should see the Weichsref entry on George Soros, which will paint the picture in exacting detail. But let's return to the Soros op-ed. When looking at the current state of Europe, however, it's clear that our foundation needs to change, just as it did after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when our efforts were centered on EU accession for Central and Eastern European nations. And just as it did after the economic crisis of 2008, when we stepped up our work in Brussels and Western Europe at scale for the first time. And what would we do without the Soroses getting in there and handling financial crises in the world? In broad terms, in Europe, we are witnessing a shift to the east. The war in Ukraine will have untold consequences, while the rise of Poland as a leading economy will eventually make it a net contributor to the EU. The future of accountable democratic government is Europe is now being determined not just in Paris and Berlin, but also in Warsaw, Kiev and Prague. 
So as OSF retools the way it works globally, we are shifting our priorities in Europe accordingly. Yes, this means we will be exiting some areas of work as we focus on today's challenges, as well as those we will face tomorrow. And yes, we will also be reducing our headcount significantly, seeking to ensure more money goes out to where it's most needed. But this isn't any kind of retreat. So sure, we're changing the organization around completely and also cutting tons of jobs, tons and tons of jobs, really most of the jobs just everywhere. But we're not retreating. This is actually going to make us more powerful. In a surprise twist, a Hungarian government official got it right when he expressed skepticism about media reports. This isn't about funding levels. It's about priorities as the focus of funding shifts back to the continent's east. To begin with, there should be absolutely no doubt that we will continue to support our foundation in Ukraine. And again, it's important that you go listen to that George Soros interview because George Soros talks about how he worked with the Nazis to load his neighbors onto Nazi trains and how he doesn't think it was a bad thing to do. It was only about his survival. You see, it wasn't about anything more than that. They were going after all the Jews, the Hungarian Jews, and George Soros, a Hungarian Jew, he says, was helping them go after Hungarian Jews, but not him because he tricked those old Nazis and told them he was a Christian. He fooled everyone, you see, and now he just says that he is a Hungarian Jew right out in the open, but the Nazis never go after him. You see, they have the same goals now. George Soros supports Ukraine the same way that those neo-Nazis in Florida support Ukraine and the same way that the neo-Nazis in Ukraine support Ukraine. I mean, they've been there since back when George Soros was helping Nazis load his Hungarian Jewish neighbors onto Nazi trains. He just got lucky, you see. He tricked them, you see. One of his neighbors, you see, told those Nazis, this one's a Christian. And that's how George Soros survived, you see, and now thrives with those very same Nazis he began thriving with back during World War II. And isn't it strange that according to the mainstream media, everything I just said is profoundly anti-Semitic, even though the people I'm saying bad things about are Nazis. Isn't it strange how that works? To begin with, there should be absolutely no doubt that we will continue to support our foundation in Ukraine. We are proud that the network of civil society groups it has assisted with over $250 million since 2014 has played such an important role in Kiev's resilience in the face of Russia's horrific war of aggression. Well, that's weird. Do the Ukrainian Nazis in Ukraine realize that Hungarian Jew who got away from them by tricking them back in World War II, George Soros and his son still have their foundation located in in Ukraine. In fact, they have tons and tons of money in Ukraine and they own all sorts of businesses and industries in Ukraine. They set all that up, of course, after they helped overthrow the Ukrainian government back in 2014. Soros and the Open Society Foundation flooded all sorts of money to prop up new businesses and new industries that would then feed that money right back in to the Open Society Foundation. George Soros noted at the time that no one will have a problem with this profiteering because it's all going to charity, his charity. Now, once again, that overthrow of the country in 2014 is what began the ethnic civil war in the Donbass. 
being conducted by, you guessed it, Ukrainian Nazis. What a strange, strange confluence of events. And yes, of course, I know I'm anti-Semitic for bringing all this up. We are regularly told that these Ukrainian Nazis are not, in fact, Nazis because they themselves are being led by the comedic actor in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, who says that he is Jewish, too. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I do know that the bags underneath his eyes are very similar to George Soros's. And Hillary Clinton has the same ones. It's just an odd coincidence about the world. And I really am saying it is an odd coincidence. I have no reason to suspect that all of these people are related in any way, except for the eye bags. Moreover, we will continue to support our foundations in Moldova and the Western Balkans as those countries work toward EU accession, which in the case of the Balkans, my father first championed in the 1990s. EU membership is vital for securing the entire Balkan region's unity and stability to counter efforts to reignite conflict in Bosnia and Kosovo, for example, and give Russia an opening. In addition, EU membership will bolster European security and avoid creating a geopolitical vacuum. So George Soros has manipulated the currencies of countries in order to overthrow them, and he has sponsored and led color revolutions in these countries in order to overthrow them. And he has been doing this in Europe and around the world for over four decades, just in its current form. He is doing this with the support of CIA trained and regime funded and armed battalions of Nazis in Ukraine. The regime has supported all of this worldwide. His goal is overthrowing countries. Obviously, if he can just corrupt them and compromise them and overthrow them that way, that's ideal. Just manipulate the currency stuff so that we don't have to get military about it so that no one ever realizes quite what we're doing. But if it must become more overt, well, they're happy to do it that way, too. And we can see that in the world. Alexander Soros goes on. We will also keep up and dramatically increase our efforts to secure equal treatment for Europe's largest ethnic minority the 12 million Roma, who mostly live in Eastern Europe. And you are to read that and understand that Alexander Soros has a commitment to society's most vulnerable, to the minorities. This is how they acquire the moral license to do whatever it is they want to do. They say that they are the only potential savior of these downtrodden people who must be saved, otherwise racisms. And if you open the Wikipedia entry for the Roma, otherwise known as the Romani people, it says the Romani, colloquially known as the Roma, are an Indo-Aryan ethnic group who traditionally lived a nomadic itinerant lifestyle. The entry notes, in the English language, the Romani are widely known by the exonym Gypsies which is considered a pejorative by some Romani due to its connotations of illegality and irregularity, as well as its historical use as a racial slur. Now, the Open Society Foundation website has its own entry on the Roma. This is from May 2019. You can find it at OpenSocietyFoundations.org. Who are the Roma? The Roma are an ethnic group who have lived in Europe since their migration from India over a thousand years ago. Roma cultural heritage includes a rich oral tradition, art forms such as flamenco, 
and emphasis on family and Romanes, the Roma language. Roma identity is often portrayed stereotypically as that of the exotic or outsider, gypsy, a label considered by many to be derogatory, but the reality is much more complex and varied. How large is the Roma population in Europe and what challenges do Roma face? Today, Roma are the largest, around 12 million people, and most disadvantaged ethnic minority in Europe. In 2003, a United Nations report provided for the first time robust statistical evidence on the extent of the challenges faced by Roma, including illiteracy, infant mortality, unemployment, and segregation in education, hunger and malnutrition, squalid housing without plumbing or sanitation, substandard health care, and other factors mean Roma have the shortest life expectancy in Europe. How have Roma been excluded from society? Over the centuries, Roma have been subjected to oppression and violence by other Europeans. During the Second World War, the Nazis exterminated hundreds of thousands of Roma, a time referred to as the Baro Porajmos, or Great Devouring. After the war, Roma continued to experience, and in some places still do, killings, violence, forced sterilization, forced segregation, evictions, and extreme poverty. So basically, what? So basically, again, this is the Open Society Foundation's description of these people, these people that Alexander Soros wants to save. His father, George Soros, actually worked with the Nazis to spot his Hungarian Jew neighbors and facilitate the loading of them onto Nazi trains. And that same man, George Soros, is also complicit and a major part of this global regime that uses things like forced sterilization and segregation around the world to carry out various parts of their agenda. These people are being portrayed as victims by the same people who are actually victimizing them. And their victimhood is then claimed and appropriated from them so that it can be exploited by the people victimizing them. But back to this article from Open Society Foundations in 2019 on the Roma. Recently, political leaders in Europe have fomented hatred of the Roma in order to win popular support. Really? Their messages of intolerance resonate widely and often encourage violence from individuals and groups in countries such as Hungary and the Czech Republic and Romania, where there have been fatal beatings, shootings and firebombings against Roma. Roma people are determined to resist the injustice. Decades ago, Roma began organizing internationally. In recent years, Roma activists and leaders have begun to grow in numbers, helped by a generation of university-educated Roma graduates. College is always the solution to everything. These activists are working to organize their communities, build grassroots change, and demand political action for justice. So they have put these activists through college, and now these social justice activists are working on behalf of Roma coordinating with the Open Society Foundations, which means that the Soroses can exploit the victimhood of the Roma people and do whatever they want in Europe. So the Soros Foundation in Europe is not retreating. Yes, they're reorganizing. They're cutting a bunch of jobs, but they're not retreating. In fact, they're going to move east. They are going to fortify themselves in Ukraine, where they are still operating, despite the fact that Russia is absolutely 
terrorizing the entire region in their brutal invasion. They are destroying absolutely everything except for the Soros organization, apparently. But back to Alexander Soros in Politico. And we remain committed to the Central European University, which was closed down in Budapest by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and has now found a new home in Vienna, thanks to the generosity of my father and Open Society Foundation. Over the past three decades, the CEU has delivered accessible, high-quality education to thousands of young people and will continue to do so. We will not be abandoning allies who stand up for democratic rights in the face of autocrats and would-be dictators, neither in Europe nor the rest of the world. But we need to be ready and able to respond to an uncertain and dangerous future. As someone who spends up to half their time working on the continent and thinks former United States President Donald Trump, or at least someone with his isolationist and anti-European policies, will be the Republican nominee, I believe a MAGA-style Republican victory in next year's U.S. presidential election could, in the end, be worse for the EU than for the U.S., Such an outcome will imperil European unity and undermine the progress achieved on many fronts in response to the war in Ukraine. We are adapting OSF to be able to respond to whatever scenarios might emerge on both sides of the Atlantic. Like my father, I regard the EU as one of modern history's great triumphs. It brought together countries that almost destroyed civilization to forge a common destiny and it helped break away former Soviet republics and satellites move toward democracy. But there remains more work to be done, and it is my great hope that OSF, in its reconfigured form, will be able to help the European project realize its full promise. And I want to conclude with this piece in Project Syndicate. But first, let's look at Project Syndicate for a moment. I have talked many times about how they are a global regime mouthpiece, This is their Wikipedia entry. And I know that Wikipedia is not the most wonderful source in the world. It is a very regime-oriented source, but that is why I sometimes like to use it when describing parts of the regime. Project Syndicate is an international media organization that publishes and syndicates commentary and analysis on a variety of global topics. All opinion pieces are published on the Project Syndicate website, but are also distributed to a wide network of partner publications for print. As of 2019, it has a network of 506 media outlets in 156 countries. And that's rather incredible, isn't it? 506 media outlets in 156 countries, all coordinated to reprint what Project Syndicate puts out. The entry also notes... Project Syndicate has received grants from George Soros's Open Society Foundations, the Politiken Foundation in Denmark, Die Zeit in Germany, Zeit Stiftung in Germany, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I present that to you just for some perspective on what we're about to go through. This Cold War is different. Printed on Friday of last week, September 1st, 2023. U.S. President Joe Biden recently brought the leaders of allies Japan and South Korea to Camp David to discuss how to contain China and counter Russia's influence. Meanwhile, leaders from the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, 
gathered in Johannesburg to criticize the West's dominance over the international institutions established after World War II. It was enough to give Cold War historians deja vu. Rather incredible, know that we are seeing World War II and the Cold War play out all over again, right while we have all this Nazi stuff going on? The West's main adversary today is China, not the Soviet Union. And the BRICS is no Warsaw Pact. But with the world entering a period of uncertainty following the demise of the post-Cold War order, the parallels are sufficient to convince many to turn to pre-1989 conceptual models to gain insight into what might come next. This includes the U.S. and China, though each is betting on a different model. And of course, in 1989, they did not have the mass understanding that is developing in the world right now. The Cold War no longer seems like a battle between American freedom and Soviet communism. It seems just like what we are seeing now and what we have always seen, a battle between the global regime that will necessarily support collectivist ideologies, this neo-feudalism in the world, a centralizing government to dominate the entire world and bring it under a one world order. They don't hide it. It's not a conspiracy theory. They come right out and say it. Between the end of World War II and the fall of the Berlin Wall, the two main forces defining the international order were ideological conflict, which split the world into two camps, and the quest for independence, which led to the proliferation of states from 50 in 1945 to over 150 in 1989 through 1991. So there are a whole lot more states. It sounds like they were just dividing up the whole world and creating new countries. While the two forces interacted, ideological conflict was dominant. Struggles for independence often morphed into proxy wars, and countries were forced to either join a bloc or define themselves by their non-alignment. The U.S. seems to think a similar dynamic will dominate this time around. Faced with its first peer competitor since the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. has sought to rally its allies behind a strategy of, quote, decoupling and, quote, de-risking essentially an economic version of the Cold War policy of containment. Now, this is not a pro-regime policy. This is not a quote-unquote Biden policy just because it happens to be implemented under the illegitimate Biden administration that seems, for all intents and purposes, to not really have any control over anything when it comes to foreign affairs. Decoupling is not something that you would assume would go along with a global regime centralizing agenda. Whereas the U.S. may be expecting Cold War II, shaped primarily by ideological polarization, China seems to be betting on global fragmentation, a multipolar order, essentially. Yes, it has tried to offer non-Western countries an alternative to the Western-dominated institutions, such as the G7 or the International Monetary Fund. But in China's view... The quest for sovereignty and independence is fundamentally incompatible with the formation of Cold War-style blocs. Instead, China expects a multipolar world. While China cannot win a battle against a U.S.-led bloc, President Xi Jinping seems convinced that it can take its place as a great power in a fragmented global order. So essentially, China can't beat the U.S. if the U.S. has all of its allies and the strength of the Western alliance. 
But China can become a great power in the world in a fragmented, multipolar world order. And that, of course, only seems natural because we are told they have 1.4 billion people and they are also removing the regime's ability to control them through the currency. Even America's closest allies are not immune from the trend toward fragmentation, despite U.S. leaders' best efforts. Consider the recent Camp David summit. Though some media were quick to herald a new Cold War, the participants' interests diverged in several ways. And again, it just said it right out in the open, despite the best efforts of the U.S.'s quote-unquote leaders in this evil twin faction, in this illegitimate regime, they cannot stem the tide of fragmentation. South Korea's main focus remains North Korea, and the intelligence sharing agreements and nuclear consultations announced after the summit were as much about signaling their resolve to push back against North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's regime as they were about countering Japan. So they're going to share information in order to counteract Kim Jong-un, who is or would be totally under control with a Donald Trump presidency. Isn't it amazing how that matters again so much? Japan, for its part, is eager to avoid strategic escalation over Taiwan, a development that would threaten its economic model, which depends significantly on trade with China. And both South Korea and Japan are unhappy with the zeal with which America is pursuing its de-risking strategy. The picture that emerges is of a world in which the superpowers lack sufficient economic, military or ideological clout to force the rest of the world, in particular, the increasingly competent middle powers to pick a side. So in a fragmented world, these global superpowers don't have the ability to force other smaller countries to go along with their agenda as part of some protection racket. Again, we see the shedding of the global regime. Contrary to how it may appear to many, not least in the U.S., the new Cold War seems to be based not on the old logic of polarization, but on a new logic of fragmentation. Judging by the growth of the BRICS, there is no shortage of countries that find that new logic enticing. And there it is. That is a clear admission that the global regime is losing. They are faltering. The United States and the rest of the West does not have the capacity any longer to wield influence over these other nations. Their system, their one world global order that they were trying to create is falling apart. Now, if standard issue villagers had any idea of what was happening in the world, and they absolutely certainly don't, or they cared about what was happening in the world, and they absolutely certainly don't, they would be paying attention to this stuff. And none of this would be surprising, but they don't pay attention to any of it. And this weekend, they did not see this coming. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com 
And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!